This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When a Lakewood baker refused to make a custom cake for a gay wedding, it set off a legal battle that's now before the U.S. Supreme Court. Oral arguments are tomorrow in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Here are the facts of the case surrounding the baker, Jack Phillips, and the couple, Charlie Craig and David Mullins. In 2012, a gay couple asked Jack to create a custom cake for their same-sex wedding ceremony. Because of his religious beliefs about marriage, Jack politely declined the opportunity, offering to sell them anything else in his shop. The couple sued Jack under Colorado law, and the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments in this case on December 5th. This case raises issues that truly strike at the heart of American civil society. What does tolerance in a free and pluralistic society look like? What civil rights are at stake? Can one support same-sex marriage and artists like Jack Phillips? And what is the road ahead? That is attorney Carrie Kupek from the Alliance Defending Freedom, which will represent Phillips at the Supreme Court. Kupek kicked off an unusual event the other day at the Museum in Washington, D.C., a kind of mock trial, a simulation of what tomorrow's real-life oral arguments might sound like. We're going to listen to some excerpts because it's a great way to learn about the intricacies of this Colorado case. So first up, David Cortman, who argued on behalf of Jack Phillips. He's senior counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. The First Amendment has long protected citizens from being forced by the government to speak a message or to create art celebrating ideas that they disagree with. And it does not matter whether that decision is popular or not. It is precisely unpopular decisions about speech that need the most protection. The question in this case is whether this long-standing principle will falter in the face of heavy cultural pressure. Jack Phillips is a cake artist that lives out his faith in every area of his life, including his small family business. He has named it Masterpiece Cake Shop because it incorporates the fact that God is his master and to remind him of the scripture that says you cannot serve both God and money. He closes Masterpiece Cake Shop on Sundays to engage in religious worship. He also helps his employees financially and in any way that he can, both inside and outside of work. He treats all of his customers with respect and dignity. And while Jack gladly serves everyone, and this cannot be overstated, he does not create any custom work that expresses messages or celebrates events in violation of his beliefs. As examples, he does not create any art or messages promoting Halloween or that oppose the family or America or that contain alcohol, nor can he celebrate with any custom creation, any marriage other than between one man and one woman. For Jack and for many others, marriage is sacred, and the wedding is an inherently religious ceremony. Jack believes, as do many others, that marriage represents the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. And Jack also personally invests himself in the artistic design of his custom cake creations. He personally delivers the cake to the wedding and often interacts with the guests. But more importantly, though, this case is not solely about same-sex marriage. It is not about whether one supports it or opposes it. It is about the principle about whether everyone can continue exercising their expressive and artistic freedom without government compulsion, regardless of the issue at hand. That is why, out of the nearly 50 Friend of the Court briefs that were filed in support of Jack, many of those briefs are from people and organizations who support same-sex marriage but also understand at the same time the importance of Jack's rights and others not to create art celebrating ideas that conflict with his own. That right, that principle, protects everyone regardless of their views, their beliefs, or the subject matter. 
And in his mock oral arguments, David Cortman of the Alliance Defending Freedom asked the court to turn the tables. Such as when a lesbian graphic designer is asked to create a church flyer opposing a gay pride event, or a Democratic speechwriter is asked to create a speech for a Republican. Respondents' new rule will require that they do so in violation of the First Amendment. But there is a better way, one that allows the commission to ensure that businesses cannot refuse to serve people simply because of who they are, but also at the same time does not permit an unconstitutional application of these laws that force people to speak a message that violates their conscience. Thank you. Arguing on behalf of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission and the gay couple was Rhea Marr, staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union. In the summer of 2012, Dave Mullins and Charlie Craig were planning their wedding. It was a happy time, and one of the details they were excited about was the cake. Charlie's mom, Debbie, was planning to be in town that summer, so they decided to wait for her to choose their cake. But what should have been a special day became memorable for all the wrong reasons, when Masterpiece Cake Shop refused even to discuss a cake with them, because Dave and Charlie are a gay couple. The bakery's owner told them that he would bake no cake of any kind for their wedding reception. The family was shocked. As Debbie has said, we went into that store happy, we left broken. What happened that day was devastating for Dave and Charlie and Debbie, but it wasn't complicated. Colorado law provides that retail stores open to the public can't refuse to serve customers based on factors including race, religion, and sexual orientation. This equal service rule is not new. It's been the law in Colorado since 1885. The places of public accommodation can't turn away customers based on who they are. It's easy for many of us to take for granted the ability to walk into a store, a bank, or a hotel and know that we won't be refused service. But without that guarantee, many of us would go about our daily lives with uncertainty and fear of being turned away. Nevertheless, the bakery argues that their usual rules don't apply to it because its custom wedding cakes are a form of art. No one disputes that cakes can be artistic, but discriminating against customers when selling an artistic product has nothing to do with the freedom of speech. The bakery's owner compares himself to Jackson Pollock. If Colorado passed a law saying that no artist may splatter paint on canvases, that would raise a First Amendment problem. But that does not mean that the state can't regulate the sale of paint splattered on canvases when it's offered to the public at large. If Jackson Pollock had opened a retail gallery in Colorado and offered his paintings for sale to the general public, he could not refuse to sell a painting to a customer because she is black or Christian or gay. And the same is true of the bakery. The fact that the bakery's refusal was based on its owner's religious beliefs does not excuse its discrimination either. Religious liberty is one of our most cherished freedoms, but it does not give anyone the right to harm others in violation of a generally applicable state law. The implications of the bakery's claim are staggering. If the bakery has its way, it could refuse to serve not only a gay couple, but an interracial couple as well. Let that sink in. A barbershop could refuse to cut a boy's hair for his bar mitzvah because of its opposition to the Jewish faith. A tailor could refuse to alter a suit for a woman because of its belief that women should not work outside the home. Fortunately, that is not the law. And for the past five years, Dave Mullins and Charlie Craig have fought to keep it that way and make sure that no one has to go through what they did. Now the bakery is asking the Supreme Court to rule for the first time that there is a constitutional right to discriminate. Rhea Marr of the ACLU. We're getting a sense of what real-life oral arguments might sound like tomorrow in a pivotal case out of Colorado. Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission involves a gay couple and a religious baker. Now, the attorneys are questioned by the justices. 
played by journalists who cover the Supreme Court. Adam Liptak of The New York Times, Mark Sherman of The AP, Richard Wolff of USA Today, and the first voice you'll hear, Alex Sawyer of The Washington Times. If a same-sex couple came into the shop and wanted two dozen cupcakes to go celebrate a family celebration of their union, would Mr. Phillips have a problem selling the cupcakes off the shelf? He would not. And in fact, he's testified in the case. He would sell them any other products, cupcakes, brownies, whatever happens. But if it's something for the celebration of marriage, which again goes to the message, uh, that's what he wouldn't participate in. And I think that explains the difference right there. Because if there was an objection to the sexual orientation of the person, he wouldn't even sell them any of the products. And that's not what's going on here. Mr. Cortman, in the record of this case, there's an affidavit from a, a lesbian couple who say they were refused the very product you were talking about, cupcakes, for their civil commitment ceremony. So is that not what you were just saying is not permissible? No, my understanding is, is if they want to come in, they can buy anything off the shelf. The question is, if they're going to create anything custom-made uh, for the same-sex celebration, he wouldn't do so. So the difference in the cupcake answer is there have been weddings where people have three-tiered cupcakes. So rather than having a full cake, they'll arrange this custom-made cupcakes and the same thing as the same-sex marriage wedding cake or whatever it happens to be. He would not do that. But if they're buying something off the shelf, cupcakes, brownies, other events, um, he would certainly sell those. One of the problems with this case is, despite all of the interest and all of the briefs and everything that's been uh, generated, the conversation that these three or actually four people had was all of 30 seconds or so. Is it your understanding, Ms. Moore, that your clients would not even have been able to get a plain sheet cake if they had simply said, and I don't think this conversation took place, give us a plain sheet cake for our wedding? Well, you've hit the nail on the head exactly with the question, which is that we don't know whether they could have received a plain, you know, off-the-shelf type of product because Masterpiece Cake Shop didn't let them get that far, didn't even ask that question. And when you look at the record in the case, there's not only an affidavit put in of a, a Stephanie Schmaltz who had tried to order cupcakes for her family commitment ceremony and was told no, but Jack Phillips himself says he had refused to make a simple sheet cake with a photo transfer of two men because it would be used for their uh wedding reception. But, so. but, but just to interrupt for a second, he didn't kick them out of the shop, right? They chose to walk out at that time, so could they not have, I mean, we just don't have the fact base to say, what if they had asked for cupcakes? What if they had asked for a cake? What if they had asked for something that had no intrinsic message about a same-sex wedding? Do we know? You know, we don't know, but it also doesn't matter. To the extent there's any message that's inherent in a wedding cake, that's a message that the bakery has already agreed to send because it's already chosen to sell its cakes to the public at large. No questions asked. It's only when you look at the identity of the customer the cake is for that they're refusing to sell the product. So it's not based on any message inherent in the product. It's based on who the customer is. So if that happens, that's discrimination. And sorry, if I may answer the second half of Judge Wolf's question. You know, the offer to sell them cookies and brownies, even if that's true, it doesn't change the fact of the matter either, right? The Colorado law requires full and equal enjoyment, right? You can't offer a second-class menu or limited service. And we know this from cases dating back to 1934, when the Colorado Supreme Court confronted a case of a restaurant that refused to serve a black customer in the dining room but said, we'll serve you dinner in the kitchen, right? And no one seriously doubts that that was race discrimination. The court easily said this is obviously the kind of discrimination the anti-discrimination law was intended to eradicate. So I just wanted to um, clarify, your position is that cake is never speech, or when, in your opinion, would cake depict speech? Does it have to have a message on it or a symbol? 
Um, there's no distinction because I don't think it matters whether or not we think of the cake as speech. Well, what we do is we look at the Anti-Discrimination Act and we say, is this a law that's targeting speech or expression or is it instead a law that's regulating something else? In this case, commercial conduct when you're involved in sales to the general public. Because we're in that latter category, right, it doesn't matter what the substance is of the product that's sold. It could be books. It could be newspapers. It could be fine art. Um, any of those things, if you choose to make it available to the public at large, you can't discriminate based on those certain characteristics that have been enumerated. You bring up examples such as Halloween or anti-American or sexual messages and the like. Those are not protected classes such as LGBT. Why is that even a, an argument on your side? Because the point of it is, is he objects to certain messages about different subject matters, so he's consistent across the board. But, but let me go back to the concession just made by respondents, because I don't want that to be overlooked. That's an incredible concession. What she basically just argued before this court, that even if it is speech, that the government can compel it. There's no case from this court that has ever held in any context, even the non-discrimination laws, even the public accommodation laws, that the government can compel speech. In fact, there's a half a dozen cases or more where the Supreme Court has held that if you compel speech, even if it is to a neutral law like this, that it strikes at the heart of the First Amendment. So we can't overlook that concession that if this cake has pictures on it or words on it or an artist has a commissioned painting, that just because he puts out a shingle, he loses his First Amendment protection. That's boundless. Mr. Cordman, I don't doubt that your client uh, thinks he's expressing a message when he makes a cake. Uh, but is there not a second part to the test? Shouldn't we also look at whether people understand him to be expressing a message? I've been to weddings, and I've eaten wedding cake, and I've never has the thought crossed my mind that the baker of that cake was telling me something. Uh, no, it's actually not part of the test. When it comes to compelled speech, the court does not ask, well, does someone understand this to be a specific message? I look at most art, I have no idea what, what the expression of the message is. Jackson Pollock paintings, uh, Jabberwocky, nonsense prose. Uh, it doesn't have to communicate any articulable message. And I think this is the point here. What we have to make sure is, is we strike that balance between serving everyone because of who they are, which we agree with and Jack does. But we, what we cannot do is go so far as to say that because you enter into business that you lose your First Amendment rights and you can compel not just to serve someone but speak a message that you disagree with, whether it's an artist or a painter or a sculptor, uh, as my colleague concedes. Expressive conduct still can be regulated consistent with the First Amendment, and this is where petitioner's argument really falls apart. We know this from the case of United States versus O'Brien. This, of course, is the draft card burning case. You've got Mr. O'Brien burning his draft card on the steps of a Boston courthouse to protest, protest the Vietnam War. There's little that is more expressive than that, right? But the Supreme Court says no problem, no First Amendment violation, because the law at issue was a law that prohibited mutilation of draft cards. It doesn't care if you do it on the steps of a courthouse or if you sit in your basement with a pair of scissors and cut it up, right? It's not a law that was aimed at suppressing the kind of protest that Mr. O'Brien engaged in. It was a law that was aimed at maintaining the government's ability to administer the draft. And because of that, the court upheld Mr. O'Brien's conviction for what was undoubtedly very expressive conduct. But had the couple asked for a cake with a gay pride flag on it, Jack Phillips would be compelled to make that cake? Or are you saying he just has to make a wedding cake? he has to make any cake that he would have sold for another couple. And so if, for example, Jack Phillips says, I don't make rainbow cakes, I think they're tacky, or I don't stock blue dye in my shop because I'm allergic to it, fine. He, he's perfectly entitled to have that policy. But if he's going to sell a rainbow cake to a heterosexual couple, he can't refuse to sell the same product to someone simply because they're gay. Is anything about this case different 
now than it was in 2012, meaning that same-sex marriage is now legal in Colorado? Would it have been litigated any differently? I'm not, I'm not sure that it is. I mean, certainly there's a distinction which was brought up in, in the case that at the time this happened, Colorado didn't even recognize same-sex marriages. Uh, the courts below didn't think that was really an issue. We, we certainly thought it was. Uh, but even with the recognition of same-sex marriage, we have, we have good, decent, and honorable people who hold this view about same-sex marriage who are still free to advocate those views even after same-sex marriage. And so while the government must recognize it, that doesn't mean it could force private citizens to participate in that sacred ceremony. Can we just spend a minute talking about um, whose speech this is in reality? If I recall from the record, um, the Phillipses call, they talk to their clients, they get an an idea of their interests, of what they want their wedding cake to say. Aren't we looking what really is the couple's own speech and their expression of what they want to celebrate at their wedding? No, I think it's both, and I think that's pretty clear. You go to uh, a writer, a photographer, an artist... And you say, these are the ideas, this is what I'm thinking. They create the art. What I would say is it's, it's at a minimum both of their speech. We don't discount their First Amendment rights just because they happen to host another speech or include another speech or create expression from another speech. I think at the absolute maximum, the baker could be a conduit for its customer speech. Mr. Corman, I wonder if um, I could ask about someone who might be an employee of the, the bakery at the local supermarket sure. who also has a sincere religious subjection. What, what happens in that case if uh, someone comes in and says, I'd like you to write something on this cake that that person finds objectionable? Sure. I think what would happen in that case is I think the person would still have a free speech or religious freedom objection, whatever it was, but I think that would switch to an accommodation. So in other words, if there was a specific employee that did not want to create that specific message or that specific cake, whatever it happened to be, uh, then the employer would have to say, can we reasonably accommodate you? If there were other employees that would be willing to do so, they would step in and do so. I think it's a little bit of a mystery. And so then let me take the, the scenario of the Masterpiece Cake Shop, sure. but put it in a very remote location where there isn't another uh, vendor anywhere nearby, and yet you have a, a same-sex couple looking for a wedding cake. Don't we then have a problem? I don't think the test for whether we compel speech is geographic. Um, if we have one specific speech writer in the entire state, can we compel that speech writer, who, by the way, I understand are usually paid, uh, to write speeches they disagree with? I don't think the court would issue that as a ruling. There may be some other factors. There may be some other things come into play. Um, but I don't think this court would have a geographic limitation on, on forced speech. Ms. Marr, I wonder if I could ask you then, taking this geography question, Denver's a big metropolitan area. There's all kinds of bakeries around. Why would a couple want to give their business to a shop that doesn't want to serve them when there are all kinds of alternatives, uh, perhaps even down the street? Because the issue here isn't about where they bought their cake. It's about full and equal participation in civic life. Stephen Charlie never should have had to walk into that store and be told, your dollar isn't good enough. And that's exactly what happened. It's irrelevant that bakery would have sold them something else. They went there that day to order a wedding cake, and they were told no and turned away doesn't matter if there are other businesses available to serve the customers. It's like saying in the 1960s that protesters who sat in at Woolworths could have gotten their sandwich at another lunch counter. A taste of oral arguments in a mock U.S. Supreme Court session held at the Museum in Washington, D.C. recently. The justices were played by some of the country's top Supreme Court reporters. The attorneys are Rhea Marr of the ACLU and David Cortman of the Alliance Defending Freedom. Actual oral arguments in this pivotal Colorado case, 
Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission are tomorrow. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The founder of a charity based in Boulder has been charged with theft and fraud, and his nonprofit faces a backlash from donors. It's a cautionary tale during the holiday giving season. Last year, we introduced you to this charity called Human Wire. It helps Syrian refugees. And we listened in as a couple in Maryland Skyped with a family who'd fled to Lebanon. It's really hot. (laughs) That is hard to take. Kim Tosowski and her husband were sending money to help the family as they tried to rebuild their lives away from the civil war. Whatever we can do, we would like to help improve and see the family move forward bit by bit. They helped the family pay for food and heat, get to the doctor, buy a refrigerator. But about a year after we spoke, Tosowski and her husband started getting concerned. They told HumanWire to release more of their money to the family, but it was never delivered. And we had sent two requests to their support team for information on these requests, and we never got a response. Even more troubling for Tosowski, she and her husband don't know where the family they'd grown close to even is right now. This is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking all around. Well, other human wire donors tell similar stories. Reporter Christopher Osher interviewed many of them, as well as human wire staffers. He found a pattern of mismanagement and delays in getting aid to families. Osher is on the investigations team at the Denver Post. And Christopher, welcome back to the program. Nice to be here. Tell us more about what you've heard from other donors to human wire. Well, there have been a, a series of concerns from donors who have, you know, contributed money to the organization and uh, then would either find out that the money hadn't been delivered or there were delays in delivery, and uh, some of them would end up just making payments directly to the families that they were supporting and bypassing Human Wire completely. So in effect, they were doubling up on what they had given. And I know that they had tried to reach out to Human Wire in all sorts of ways, social media channels, to find out what was going on. Right, right. The founder, Andrew Barron, has been charged by the Boulder District Attorney's Office with theft and charity fraud, both felonies. He was arrested in November and released on bail. And so there are concerns that he took money, I gather, from the charity for his own gain? Well, yes. He, and he hasn't denied that he he took money. And if you look at what the District Attorney's Office has charged, they uh, allege a theft in the neighborhood of 130000 um, Andrew's contention is that, you know, he was due a salary and that uh, he didn't see anything wrong with taking the money. Uh, the problem is the donors were giving the money with the expectation that 100 percent would go to support refugee families. And so they feel tremendously misled. That's what he told us when we first profiled Human Wire, that everything would go to the families. I guess he later added something to the Human Wire website that allowed him a bit more freedom, but it was hard to find, as you found. Well, it it was harder to find, uh, one thing, and it was, 
you know, kind of an addendum in August when some of these problems began to become apparent and people were raising questions about it in which he he changed the terms. Uh, his, his allegation is that those terms were always, you know, the way the nonprofit practice, but that it gave him permission to use 100 percent on whatever was donated on operating expenses if necessary. Uh, the folks he was trying to help, the refugees, have already been through a lot. And then Human Wire comes along purporting to help them. How has this affected the families, many of whom I think moved from refugee camps to apartments with the initial help from Human Wire? Yes, you're dealing with families that have gone through war, been dislocated, have dealt with just extreme stress. So the volunteers and staffers that were working with these refugees just said that these people felt like they were being completely victimized all over again. What did that look like for these families? Well, they were facing eviction. Um, They were facing, you know, loss of promised uh, food uh, supplements. And so it was quite an ordeal for them. And some of the uh, staffers and volunteers kind of worked to try and find other alternative means of supporting these people. Sometimes tapping their own pocketbooks to help. Correct. No. I want to be clear that uh, a couple of donors we've talked to, I do think some of their support for these families was delivered. And they got receipts showing donations were spent on buying food for families, for example. And uh, Kim Tosowski and her husband, Steve, who we heard from earlier, actually want Human Wire to continue just under new management. They believe that strongly in the mission and the one-to-one connection that they'd established with this family, again, whose whereabouts they've since lost track of. Uh, First of all, can Human Wire accept more donations at this point? At this point, they can't. A judge, as part of the bond conditions for Andrew Barron, uh, the chief executive officer, have said uh, that they cannot accept any more donations. Okay. Uh, did you also find in your investigation that Human Wire had achieved some good for Syrian refugees? Sure. I mean, there there was a lot of money raised, and some of that money was transferred to refugees and put into operations. The problem was that you know, other amounts weren't, and that caused significant delays at certain junctures. As long as money was coming in, um, I think Andrew was able to kind of keep everything flowing in a way. But when donations tailed off at some point, that's when there started to be significant delays. And that you say money was diverted to Barron's personal household checking account and used on personal expenses, part of the allegations here. It does look like he'll get his day in court so to speak, uh, to make his case about being uh, a victim in this, because he on YouTube posted a long retort to your investigation. He says an employee of Human Wire stole funds from the organization and that he, in fact, Barron, is the real victim in this case. I know you were aware of that claim. What did you make of it? I I did not find a lot of validity in it, but uh, also he made that claim to the Boulder Police Department, which also didn't find much validity in it. Um, There were a a number of issues with it. One was um, the the person that he said was making these thefts is in, uh, you know, Boulder. And the the expenses that he alleged were thefts were occurring overseas in Greece. Um, So that was one issue. Um, Secondly, uh, the 
payments were being made to support people that he had promised 100% payment to. That was another issue. And the person he was alleging had made the theft actually had been borrowing money in order to support refugees. So uh, there wasn't a lot that police found uh, very valid in that claim. I was interested to read in your reporting that some of what he did and has admitted to just really doesn't fall under best practices for nonprofits. Yeah, I mean, I did talk to some experts in uh, nonprofits and the charitable field. Um, they said, you know, if you're going to have a salary for a CEO of a nonprofit, that needs to go to a board of directors and they need to approve it. Um, it shouldn't, you know, the way he did the withdrawals, it was just kind of as an he needed the money, um, you know, the proper practice would be that there'd be a set salary um, and it would be a board approved salary. Uh, how strong was was the board? What, what kind of board was in place for Human Wire? I think if I recall, there were f- uh, at some point four directors, uh, one of which was Andrew himself. Uh, one of those had resigned. Um, so, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of strong oversight. You should have a, you know, kind of independent board that is looking at these matters and taking formal votes on them. And speaking of resignations, many of the workers for Human Wire, the volunteers, have since distanced themselves from the organization, correct? Correct. I mean, at, at the time of my original reporting, uh, there had been mass reg- resignations in the staff in Boulder. There had been mass resignations uh, in their campaigns in Greece and in their campaigns in Turkey. And it's my understanding now that, uh, you know, there was a Lebanese operation as well, and that's been disbanded. So what can we learn, Christopher Osher, from this case more generally about vetting charities? You talked about an independent board, but I noticed that still a couple of years after Human Wire started, uh, it isn't evaluated on like Charity Navigator or ProPublica's Nonprofit Explorer. And that makes it difficult for a donor to know whether an organization is trustworthy. Um, Do you know why they don't show up on those charity watchdog sites? And and what, what do you glean from this? Well, I think part of it is Andrew had originally viewed this as a for-profit enterprise, and so they weren't originally a charity. At some point, I think about a year ago, they transferred into a nonprofit status. He's never filed the the nonprofit tax forms that are required for a charity to file, so that's probably why they're not being picked up at this juncture. And do you think there's something larger to learn here? Well, I think people always have to be careful. You know, it was, you know, people gave with good intentions and, uh, you know, sadly now they feel misled. Do you think there's a future for Human Wire? I, I really don't know. I mean, it it'll, it has a criminal case involving Andrew uh, pending. Um, you know, he's got his defenses. We'll have to see how that shakes out. And, uh, you know, if somebody wants it to continue, you're going to have to have somebody take it over, it sounds like. Christopher Rocher is an investigative reporter with the Denver Post, and you can read his stories about Boulder-based Human Wire and the arrest of its founder at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and it might be the strangest job I've ever heard of. It's a dangerous one, too. Maule Don Kulung lives in a remote mountain village in Nepal, and he harvests hallucinogenic honey. He says a spirit chose him for this work. It means scaling sheer rock cliffs and braving the sting of the world's largest honeybees. 
Kulung is the subject of The Last Honey Hunter, a documentary from several Colorado filmmakers, including producer Ben Ayers. It screens tonight in Golden. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's uh, great to be here. Tell us more about this man, this last honey hunter. You have to understand, uh, in the villages where Maoridan is from, in these areas of extremely remote Nepal, these are subsistence living communities. And cash is very, very hard to come by. And so for Maule, to buy simple things like cooking oil or salt or to send his kids to school, he needs a certain amount of cash. And that is the ultimate incentive for him is that this is a job just like anybody else's. But he's the only one in his community that has the spiritual wherewithal to do this without getting cursed. And with that comes a great amount of bravery and skill. But in the Kulun culture, being chosen by certain spirits in your dream determines a lot of who you are in life. And it helps define who you are. And Maledan is the last honey hunter in his village. The last honey hunter in his village. Mm -hmm. So it's that a spirit chose him to do this work. He had a dream that I guess anyone that replaces him will have to have in order to collect this honey. Exactly. And that's sort of the crux conflict of the film. We went with Maule on his last trips to the cliffs. This was a process, the film took me about 10 years from meeting Maule to be able to actually get the film out. And the, the reason that he's the last honey hunter is that nobody else in the village has had the proper dream yet. So to harvest this honey, he has to climb hundreds of feet up rope ladders with no harness or net on screen, when you show these rope ladders, sometimes it's, it's hard to even see the top of them. They sort of disappear into the mist. And he's almost entirely exposed to the elements and to the stings of these enormous bees. Why do people want this honey? Why is there a market for it? The hallucinogenic honey, or, or the, the red honey, is also what it's referred to. It fetches a fairly high price on this kind of gray market, mostly in Korea, but also out into China. And so once the honey is gathered, uh, local traders then send it off and it kind of goes underground uh, in Kathmandu and resurfaces in other parts of Asia. People use it in Korea in small doses for increase your chi or your vigor, but it's also seen as like a a sexual aid. Have you tried it? I've tried a little bit of it. The, The term hallucinogenic is a misnomer. The honey is basically poisonous and at some point... When you're losing all bodily function control, you might see something. I've eaten enough of it to feel extremely nauseous, to kind of hear, you know, a bit of like buzzing in my ears. And that was about a half a teaspoon. Oh, my. And that was about as much as I'd ever care to take. What makes the honey poisonous, by the way? The conventional wisdom is that the hallucinogenic honey comes from rhododendron pollen, granotoxins. But in the course of making the film and then also doing a piece for National Geographic magazine that came out in July, I've been researching, um, talking to locals, but also talking to experts, um, botanists. And the type of rhododendron that flowers at that elevation actually isn't poisonous. It's also not bee pollinated. So upon talking to Maui and the locals, we found out that it's a different plant called bulu. And so we've had the honey analyzed um, at the Royal Botanical Gardens in Edinburgh. And have found that it's a totally different pollen, actually, that makes it hallucinogenic or poisonous. And that's different than the conventional wisdom. Um, It's the same chemical compound, which are called granotoxins, that come through on the pollen that make you feel funny. But from a different plant. Correct. The film points out that you can die if you take too much. Indeed. Indeed. And that actually happened in Korea a few years ago. 
And the market for it since has fallen out in Nepal. And right now, um, Maulidan's last harvest was also done in part because the wax fetches a small price as well. But it's not as lucrative as it was when he was a young man. What do you do with that type of beeswax? That type of beeswax also goes to Kathmandu. It's, it's often used in the lost wax sculpting process where it's mixed with resin. And artisans carve the resin, which is then cast into brass deities. Huh. And, and these are the largest honeybees in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A- Aphis laboriosa is the uh, scientific name. Did you get stung by them? Yeah, many times. We all did. Um, none of us as much as Maulidan. A lot of the, the shooting that we did for the film was high angle work. And so we were hanging on ropes next to Mauli. You know, we were about 300 feet off the ground. And did, and did you have anything that protected you? Yeah, we had bee suits on. I mean, we had the full-on American full head-to-toe bee suit. But he just had a thin piece of mosquito netting around his neck. And he probably got stung between, you know, 60 and 70 times on each harvest that we watched. I want to play a quick scene from the film. In it, we get a sense of, of what he thinks of being his village's honey hunter, which, as you describe it, sounds, you know, quite prestigious. The work is not honorable. How many curses have been placed upon me? How much misfortune? Is that because he stung so much and because he's so vulnerable up on that rope? That's one of the incredible things about the film and about Maui as a character. When we, we were drawn into the film the way that everybody is, and even the way that this program is sort of focusing on this crazy hallucinogenic honey, this incredible human endeavor. And as we interviewed Mali and as we spent more time with him, you realize that he's a very thoughtful and reflective and very, very deep man. And he feels cursed because he's worried about his impact upon the lives of all the bees. And he's worried about basically the karmic impact of what he's doing, of how many millions of bees have been killed when he takes away their food. For us, you know, that's, that's also another piece of the film that's really powerful was to see Maule's deep reflection upon his relationship with the natural world and this small impact that a lot of us would see as being very secondary for him was actually a big moment in how he sees himself and how he reflects upon his life and for him also maybe a cause of some of the misfortunes that he suffered. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Ben Ayers. He's one of the filmmakers behind The Last Honey Hunter. It's a documentary that is set in Nepal and follows a man who says a spirit chose him to be a collector of honey from the largest honeybees in the world uh, that live on these sheer rock cliffs. It's very difficult to get their honey. And what what befalls him besides this terrible work? Malay's story is one of a lot of um, people like him in rural Nepal. Living out there is very difficult. The village that he lives in is about three days away from a road. Uh, There's very little income generation opportunities. He survives on what he can grow. So life out there is difficult. Maternal mortality is high. Nutrition is low. And, you know, Maulay's had three of his wives die. And he has had children die in his life. What's really interesting about Maulay that the film doesn't necessarily go into, but he's not an upstanding member of his community. He's sort of seen as being a bit of a drunk, a bit of a lower-standing member of society. But when it comes time to harvest the honey, he literally transforms. And this spirit actually comes into him. 
and he's revered by everyone, but only for a few days a year. Do you believe in the spirits? Well, it's interesting. So the the main spirit that the film and Maui's life is focused on is a jungle spirit called Ronkemi. And a big part of one of the reasons it took me so long to be able to make the film is Maui and the communities were convinced that if outsiders like us came onto the cliffs, we would be cursed by the spirit. So I had to go through a lot of work with the community, and, and I've had a longstanding connection with them through the work that I do in Nepal with the Z Foundation, which is a Colorado-based nonprofit. Yeah, this is and, a foundation that does a development work in Nepal. Correct. And that's sort of my day job. And so through the course of my work, it took me a long time to convince them that, you know, we'll figure it out. We'll do the shaman ceremonies. We'll we'll do what we need to do to get blessed. And so during the course of the film and part of what we had to do to prepare for the for the harvest was to do all these ceremonies where we appeased this god, Ron Kemi. And a lot of weird things happened during that time. Uh, there was a a time that we were filming this ceremony where Maole is getting blessed and we are all getting blessed as part of the team. And as soon as, you know, Ronkemi was called in and, and four chickens were sacrificed, as soon as that happened, all of our electronics stopped working. And it was just a strange event. And things like that kept happening on the expedition. And I think that there's different ways to look at the world and there's a rational explanation for everything. But it had a different feeling. There was a weight to it. So I do believe that for Maole and for the Kulung, their beliefs in this spirit world that exists in parallel to our world have some bearing in their reality. And it might just be electromagnetic in ours. I don't know. Huh. But there's something cool and creepy going on out in the hills of Nepal, for sure. Do you think this film is blessed? Blessed or cursed? When we did the world premiere at Telluride Mountain Film, Ben Knight, who's another filmmaker based out of Colorado, and Renan Osterk, who I worked with, we were all joking with, about, like, oh, I wonder what Ron Cammy's going to do in Telluride. The film is shot in super high definition. Uh, we use these very, very expensive, very high-end cameras and lenses for it. So they had to bring in a special projector. This projector is brand new, top of the line, whichever has been working fine all day. Comes time to show The Last Honey Hunter, and the projector melts down. And so the the world premiere was delayed by 45 minutes while the technicians couldn't figure out what was wrong with this. So if, if you're cursed, it's only a 45-minute curse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As curses for, go. For us, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. For Maui, I think it's more significant. Thanks for being with us. That's my pleasure. Thanks for your time. Ben Ayers is one of several Colorado filmmakers behind The Last Honey Hunter. It screens tonight at the American Mountaineering Center in Golden, and you can watch a trailer at CBR.org. You'd think hospitals, of all places, would serve healthy food, but they don't always. As CPR health reporter John Daly explains, Colorado is home to the first statewide program to make hospital food more nutritious. Virginia Donaldson is part of that transition. She's an administrator at Children's Hospital Colorado, and here's how her days used to start. I would have a breakfast burrito smothered in green chili. She's been working at Children's for 23 years. And it was huge. It had potatoes and wrapped in a tortilla. It was known as the beast. They're awesome. It wasn't the only less than healthy choice she'd make at work. I was doing the two or three, four sodas a day, and it was usually Mountain Dew. 
which is one of the worst ones. I also became type 2 diabetic, and I weighed more than a Bronco linebacker, and I was in tears every day. So Donaldson made a change. She started to chip away at her excess weight. She ditched the morning burritos and sugary drinks. She started exercising more, even using hospital stairwells for walking workouts. In my first year, I dropped 40 pounds because I stopped drinking soda. Her story mirrors changes at her workplace, Children's Hospital. It's part of a unique statewide initiative, the Colorado Healthy Hospital Compact. A quarter of the state's 100 or so hospitals are promoting healthier food and drinks. Katie O'Connor manages health promotion at Children's. She says food and drink options had to evolve for the sake of patients. Kids who start at a young age having weight gain and obesity generally maintain that throughout their lifetime. Sugary beverages were available at Children's, but they're the number one contributor of sugar in kids' diets, a leading cause of obesity and diabetes. O'Connor thought the hospital should dump sugary drinks, but she met resistance, even from colleagues. You say, you know what, if patients' families are here, they should have a Coke, they should have fries, they should have a burger, whatever they need to have. But O'Connor says they needed to offer comfort without the sugar and fat. That's because Colorado has gotten chunky. More than one in five children is overweight or obese. That's also true for more than half of adults. To spotlight the trend, O'Connor created a sugar cube mountain at Children's It showed the 35 pounds of sugar a person would get drinking a can of soda every day for a year. People came up and said, hey, my kids saw that, and now they they don't want to drink it. They think it's really gross. She says in March, children's cut the sugary beverages and replaced them with bottled water and small containers of 100 percent fruit juice. Sharon Krakow runs the Healthy Hospital Compact. She says there's been a gap between what hospitals practice and what they preach. We're saying, hey, you know, maintain a healthy weight, be physically active, and then everywhere you go, there's junk foods. She says since the compact started, about 20 percent of participating hospitals have dropped sugary drinks. If they want a, a soda, they can bring it in themselves, but the hospitals that do that don't offer them. The changes are hospital-wide. Instead of vending machines selling sodas, there are refrigerators filled with healthier beverages. The red, yellow, and green dots. Some food choices are even color-coded. Program manager Katie O'Connor shows a display of snacks. The healthy ones get a green dot on the top row. Sugary snacks are relegated to near the floor with a red dot. Visitors, patients, and employees like nurse Liz Valdez all have to accept a new reality. I can tell you when I've been stressed out, I'm going to be honest. I want to go reach for something sweet. She admits in a crunch she's a cookie eater. Studies have shown obesity is prevalent in workers with long weeks, night shifts, and stress. Valdez says that describes a lot of hospital employees. And there's days where you might forgo your lunch because you have a patient that needs you. Now she's more often to reach for a healthy snack. Her colleague Eileen Schwartz, also a nurse, says there hasn't been a lot of pushback from patients or families. I think they all know that we're all trying to do what's healthiest for their kids. The transition to healthier eating is still a work in progress. The hospital had to adjust to an initial loss of revenue from sugary drinks. Some people worried about artificial sweeteners in the zero-calorie sodas. And in the cafeteria, you can still hear this. Those are potatoes in a deep-fat fryer. But children's may ultimately eliminate the fryers, just as some hospitals around the state have done, in the push to prevent rather than promote obesity. 
I'm John Daly, CPR News. And that's the show for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters or connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.